Chapter 1. A Young Man in Christ Someone who is called a Christian simply because he happens to live in a Christian nation is a very different person from an actual Christian, for, unfortunately, the Christianity of Christian nations is something like the gold that is spread over many of our household ornaments. It is very thin indeed. A little Christian gold leaf goes a very long way and makes things look respectable, but the gold-plated articles are not solid gold. National Christianity is no more the real thing than a gold-plated penny is a golden coin of the kingdom. It is a sad fact that many who are called Christians because they belong to a Christian nation are a grievous dishonor to the name of Christ. The heathen, judging Christianity by them, have often been heard to say, We are better off remaining as we are than to become as drunken or swear as profanely or act as cruelly as these so-called Christian people do. Our missionaries have found this to be a terrible hindrance to the success of their work. I have nothing to do now with merely nominal Christianity. Do what you want with it. Use it as a football if you want to. Neither do I at all identify a person in Christ with one who is well versed with all the externals of the Christian religion and who gives himself up devotedly to them, but never looks into the center, into the heart and kernel of the matter. It has been well said that when a man possesses nothing but the externals of religion, he is generally very dogmatic about them, because he has nothing else, while a man who has passed beyond the externals into the very soul and essence of our holy faith can allow a thousand differences of opinion in his fellow Christians as to outward forms without feeling that these differences constitute any barrier whatsoever to the warmest fellowship. A person may go as far as he pleases in the observance of religious rites, and he can become a stickler for even the tithing of the mint, anise, and cumin of ceremonials, sacraments, and the like. Matthew 23, 23. Yet for all that, he may not be a man in Christ. I am also bound to confess that there are members of evangelical churches, not devotees of ceremonialism, but advocates for the barest simplicity of worship, who make a very high profession of being real Christians and who talk a great deal about vital godliness, yet nevertheless they are not men in Christ. The Church of Christ has been plagued by hypocrites from the first day even until now. There was a Judas among the apostles themselves. Are you surprised at this? I confess I am not. Because Christianity is in itself so valuable, therefore there are many worthless imitations. People counterfeit money because it's worth having. If the money ever becomes worthless, the trade of the counterfeiter would be gone. It is because the possession of true godliness is such a valuable thing that there are so many who pretend to have it who know nothing about it. I quite often distrust those who are so loud in their professions. I know that the cart that rings the loudest bell when it goes through the street only carries dust, but I never hear a bell rung when they are carrying diamonds or gold bullion through the city. The best actions that are worked in this world are for the most part done in secret by those who desire no eye to observe them except the eye of the Almighty God. Some people, though, under the pretense of doing that, are really standing up for themselves rather than for Christ. 
They are not quite as anxious to cry, Behold the Lamb of God, John 1.29, as to say, Come, see my zeal for the Lord of hosts, admire me, and see what a wonderful honor I am to the religion of Jesus Christ. I give up these religious pretenders to the world's utmost scorn. I have nothing to say in their defense, but very much to say by way of disgust at their untruthfulness. I am now going to speak about men who are really in Christ, men who have Christ in their heart of hearts and are in Christ themselves. A man in Christ is a man, and being a man he is therefore imperfect. I have heard a great deal of talk about perfect men, but I believe that a little examination with a microscope, or even without it, would have discovered a great many flaws in them, and probably more in those who thought themselves perfect than in others who have honestly confessed their imperfections. There's not a Christian man whose entire life might be read instead of the Bible whose life would not need notes, additions, and corrections before it would exactly correspond with the perfect law of the Lord. Ask him, May I learn Christian principles entirely from your conduct? He would say, I wish I could answer yes. I am striving to make my conduct so, but even though I try to copy my master in every detail, I am afraid that I have still failed in some respects to reproduce the full spirit of the grand original. I wish you could read me and see the spirit of the New Testament in every little act as well as in every great transaction of my life. However, I make mistakes, and what's more, I sometimes drop my guard and allow the old nature that remains in me to come to the front. I am not what I should be, nor what I want to be, nor, blessed be God, what I will be. I hope you will see something of Christ in me, but I am just a man, and being in this body I have many weaknesses. When you are judging Christian men, should not you who may not happen to be Christians remember this? Be fair, be honest. If a man does not receive the gospel himself, at least let him treat those who do receive it with the honesty that he would desire to be exercised toward himself. A man in Christ is a man. Don't expect him to be an angel. When I say that a man in Christ is a man, I mean that if he is truly in Christ, he is therefore manly. Somehow there is an idea that if you become a Christian, you must sink your manliness and become soft and weak. It is supposed that you allow your liberty to be curtailed by a set of negations that you do not have the courage to break through, although you would if you tried. Some people think that you must not do this and you must not do that, but you are to take out your backbone and become like a mollusk. You are to be as sweet as honey toward everybody, and every atom of spirit is to be evaporated from you. You are to ask permission from ministers and church authorities to breathe, and you are to become a sort of living martyr who lives a miserable life in the hope of dying in the aroma of sanctity. I do not believe in such Christianity at all. The Christian man, it seems to me, is the noblest style of man. He is the freest, bravest, most heroic, and most fearless of men. If he is what he should be, he is, in the best sense of the word, a man all over, from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. He is such a man because he has realized his own personal responsibility to God. He knows that to his own master he stands or falls, that he will have to give an account in the day of judgment for his thoughts, words, and actions, 
and therefore he does not pin himself to any man's sleeve, no matter if he is a priest, minister, or anything else. He thinks for himself, takes the Bible and reads for himself, and comes to God in Christ Jesus personally, and on his own account. He is not content to do business with subordinates, but goes to the head of the great firm. Being accustomed also to try to do that which is right at all times, if he is a man in Christ, he is bold. I heard a story of a man who was so continually in debt, and was so often arrested for it, that one day, catching his sleeve on a fence, he turned around and begged to be let alone this time. There are many people who go through life much like that. They know that they have done wrong, and that they are doing wrong, and therefore, conscience doth make cowards of them. Footnote. Conscience doth make cowards is from Act 3, Scene 1 of Shakespeare's play Hamlet. However, when the conscience has been quieted, and the heart knows itself to be set upon integrity, and established in the right, the Christian man is not afraid to go anywhere. Moreover, a man in Christ is accustomed to wait upon his Lord and Master to know what he should do, and he recognizes Christ's law as being his sole rule. For this reason, he is the freest man under heaven, because he doesn't recognize the slavish rules that make most men tremble lest they should lose their social status or forfeit the favor of the society in which they move. He obeys the laws of his country because Christ has commanded him to do so, and all things that are right and true are happy bonds to him that he doesn't want to break. As for the foolish customs and frivolous formalities that fashion ordains, he delights to put his foot through them and trample them under his feet. For he says, I am your servant, O Lord, you have loosed my bonds. Psalm 116, 16. When he has anything to say, he considers whether his master would approve. As to whether the world would approve or not, it doesn't enter into his mind to consider. He has passed beyond that. He knows the liberty wherewith Christ makes us free. Galatians 5, 1. When we become servants of Christ, we cease to be servants of men. When Christ's yoke is upon you, then you are free to do what is right, no matter who may forbid it. From that time forth, you would not say anything that is not true even in order to win the acclamation of a nation, nor would you suppress the truth even if the universe itself would disapprove. A man in Christ bowing the knee before the king himself is too noble to submit to error or to sin, even if it is robed in all the pomp of power. He stands up for what is right and true, and if the heavens would fall, he would still be found standing tall. A man in Christ is manly because he is trusting in providence. If he is what I mean by a man in Christ, he believes that whatever happens here below is ordered and arranged by his great Lord and Master. Therefore, when anything occurs that surprises and maybe perplexes him for the moment, he feels that it is still not an accident nor an unforeseen calamity beyond divine control. He believes that his Lord has a bit in the mouth of the tempest and reins up the storm. He is sure that Jesus, as King of Kings, sits in the cabinets of princes and rules all the affairs of mankind. Therefore, he is 
not afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. Psalm 112, 7. If he lives as a Christian should live, he can wait when others are seized with sudden panic, for he knows that there is no panic in heaven, and that all things are rightly arranged and ordered by the powers above. Committing his present situation into the hands of his Lord Jesus, he both patiently waits and quietly hopes. He is thus enabled to become master of the situation, for he is cool and calm when others are confused. He is a match for any man in the hour of perplexity, for he has flung his burden off his shoulder and left it with his Lord. Now he can go forward with a clear and peaceful mind to do his work or to leave it undone as the peril of the moment demands. A Christian man, because he trusts in the God of providence, stands tall like a man, 1 Samuel 4, 9, and is not afraid. He is manly because, as a Christian, he does not retreat when he is opposed, for he expects opposition. That man who, being in Christ, never meets with any opposition, must either be in very happy and unique circumstances, or he must somewhat hide his religion. For from the first day until now, it has been found that those who will live godly in Christ Jesus must suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 The man in Christ, being a true man, does not worry about that. If a joke is told at his expense, he knows that it does not break any bones. There is a little laughter over a story that is more clever than true, and perhaps a smirk or two caused by some very nasty sarcasm, but he expected that and brushed it aside when he became a Christian. Little by little he has become so used to it that if it pleases other people it does not annoy him. Now and then, when a sting does go rather near the heart, he is inclined to sing to himself very quietly, If on my face for thy dear name shame and reproaches be, all hail reproach and welcome shame, if thou remember me. Footnote. This is from a hymn by Thomas Havais, 1734-1820, that begins with, O thou from whom all goodness flows. So he gets to be an all-around man, and it frequently happens that, as he pursues the even tenor of his way, those who at first despised him come to respect him. Men trust him, and finding him honorable, they honor him. Yes, they honor him for his faithfulness to his convictions. For even with those who don't care for Christianity, there is something that makes them reverence the man who is truly what he professes to be. We have seen this to be true in others, and may each one of us live long enough to experience it in ourselves. Simply let the Christian live on and live well, and he will live down opposition. Or, if the opposition continues, he will live above it and flourish all the more. I have said that a man in Christ is truly a man, and I will give one more meaning to my words. He is a man in this sense, that he is human. It gives a better meaning if we lengthen out that last syllable. He is humane. Of all who live, the man in Christ is the most human, or really the most humane man. In this he follows the Lord Christ himself. Ah, what a man he was! There is no one you could not point to and say, He is an Englishman, 
or he is a German, or he is a Jew, or he is a philosopher, or he is a clergyman, or something else that is special and distinguishing. However, of Jesus of Nazareth as a human being, you could never say more than that he was a man, the noblest, purest specimen of man who ever adorned this world. He was a man who belonged to all nations, to all ranks, and to all times. Don't you notice in his life how everything that had to do with man lay near his heart? I take it that he was more completely a man than John the Baptist, although there are many who consider that type of manhood to be the very highest. John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, but Jesus came both eating and drinking. And although the rough crowd said, He is a drunken man and a wine-bibber, yet he was all the more a perfect man, because he was a man among men. Matthew 11, 18-19 He did not dwell in the wilderness, but among the people. He did not eat locusts and wild honey, but went to a marriage and ate bread at the tables of those who invited him. He entered into all that men did except their sins. He was in all things to man a true brother and friend. He was not merely a preacher, but he became a physician and healed bodily sicknesses. The Christian man should always be the helper of everything that promotes the health and welfare of the people. Christ was not only the bread from heaven, John 6:51, but he gave the bread of this life to the poor and needy. He fed thousands of the weak with loaves and fishes. Matthew 14.13-21, Matthew 15.32-39. Even if all other hands are tightly closed, the hand of the Christian man should always be open to relieve human necessity. Being a man, the believer is a brother to all men, rich and poor, sick and healthy, and he should seek their good in every possible way, aiming still at the highest good, namely the saving of their souls. The man in Christ also is in the best sense human in that he lives in a real world and not in an ideal castle of sanctity. He has learned how to spiritualize the secular. He elevates the things of a man until they become the things of God. It's very easy to secularize the spiritual. There are many who have desecrated the pulpit and have brought it down to the lowest conceivable level. But there are others who have elevated the carpenter's bench and have made it holiness unto the Lord. Exodus 39:30. The man in Christ does exactly that. He does not draw a line and say, My life in Christ goes this far, but no further. My religion is a thing for Sundays, but not for the stock exchange. Do unto others as you would like them to do unto you. Matthew 7:12 is a golden rule for the family, but it will not do for our workplace at all. We could not make a living on any such principle. No, he considers that no religion can be true that disqualifies a man for a lawful calling. His religion is part and parcel of himself. He doesn't carry it with him, but it is in him. It has come to be himself. A man in Christ lives his life and does his work as sacredly as he reads his Bible. He doesn't pray only upon his knees when he is alone, but he speaks with God in all places. His service of God is not confined to his closet and his pew, but even when diligent in business, he is still fervent in spirit, 
serving the Lord. Romans 12:11. All that Christians do should be done as unto the Lord, whether ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do. 1 Corinthians 10:31. If there's anything in this world that you cannot do to the glory of God, you must not do it at all. But all things that you do, if you are Christian men, are to be done in the spirit of faith, in the presence of God, and for the glory of God Most High. Such is the man in Christ Jesus. It is also his trait as a man, and a humane one, that he does not seek his own gain in selfishness. Of course, going into the world, he does not tell a lie and say, I'm not going to try and make money, I will not try to succeed in business. He is going to try to make a profit, and he would be a great fool for going into business at all if he had no such goal. Does he go into business with the intent of losing his capital? Nobody would believe him if he said so. No, but he goes to his office with this determination I am not going to rob someone to enrich myself. It will not be said of one single grain of gold that I have that I squeezed it from the widow or the orphan, or that I gained it by driving a man hard who needed it more than I, or that I took it by force from someone who, whether he needed it or not, had a better right to it than I. The doctrine of the worldling in Horace, when he said, Get money, fairly if you can, but by all means get it, is not a Christian doctrine. It is worthy of heathenism in its worst form. The man in Christ, although active, earnest, intelligent, and by no means a fool, if you think he is, deal with him and see, is considered to be a fool by some people when he makes a promise to his own loss and keeps his word, Psalm 15, 4, and when he sees a fine opportunity at which some would leap, but he stands back and says, I do not do so because of the fear of the Lord. He cannot and will not bring a curse upon himself by an unjust action. And this, it seems to me, makes him all the more truly a man, although it demonstrates one of the characteristics of his being a man in Christ Jesus. Young men, I would honestly say to you that I would be ashamed to speak of a religion that would make you soft, cowardly, effeminate, and spiritless, one that would make you unrefined in business having no souls of your own, the prey of every shrewd crook. Young men, I have tried the faith of Jesus Christ, and I have found that it gave me pluck. That is an old Saxon word, but it is exactly what I mean. It puts soul into a man, firmness, resolution, courage. If he is in the habit of talking with his own conscience, and his Bible, and his God, he can look the whole universe in the face and a universe of devils too, and never feel the slightest fear. Why should he? Is not the Eternal One on the Christian man's side? Is not the risen and reigning Christ on his side? Is not the Blessed Spirit his friend? Yes, the angels of God, and providence, and time, and eternity, and all the forces that exist, are his allies, with the only exception of death and hell and his Lord has conquered these, and has trampled them underfoot. I wish that every young man would enlist in the army of Christ fairly early, for none make such good soldiers as those who begin while they are still young.